This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Olive Magazine podcast, a weekly roundup of food and drink chat brought to you by the team behind Olive Magazine. I'm Janine, Olive's food director, and I'll be hosting this episode. Later on, web editor Alex talks to known head chef Scott Smith about using Asian Scottish ingredients in contemporary recipes. And I'll be catching up with Adam to talk about some cool new recipe trends. But first up, editor Laura and drinks writer Hannah discuss how climate change is going to affect our weekly wine shop. Okay, hello. This is Laura, the editor of Olive, and I'm here with the lovely Hannah, who compiles our drinks pages. Hello. Hello. Um, We thought we'd have a chat today about climate change, which is a bit of a random one for us, isn't it? Mm. We don't normally touch on things like this, but uh, having sort of spoken to our our wine columnist, Kate Hawkins, um, we realised that climate change is actually having quite a huge impact on the wine industry and the wine world and, and what wines we're shopping for and what wines mm. we're buying. Um, and we just thought it was quite an interesting subject that needed to be talked about, really. Mm. Um, so, Hannah, give us a bit of background about it. Why is climate change affecting our weekly wine shop? Well, um, so anyone who's been paying attention to what's been going on in the wine world in the last year will know that it's it's not been... It's been quite a tough time. Yeah. Um, Wine yields um, have been massively down in quite a lot of different, uh, quite a lot of the major wine producing regions, um, such as Europe. Um, I mean, I think Europe particularly has had like a 14% drop in in yields. Um, And that's been due to like a succession of weather related um, issues. So, absolutely brutal heat waves, um, lake frosts, um, wildfires, and all these issues are 
sort of directly or indirectly related to climate change um because it's you know it's really changing our weather patterns it's making it much more unpredictable um and the reason why this affects wine so much is because um say say take for example rising temperatures Mm. um when we have you know warm winters and really really hot summers what 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 this means is that grapes will ripen early yeah um that means that wine producers have to really rush to get um the harvest in before the grapes get too ripe to use yeah Um, because that will change the flavor quite dramatically mm. right that means they'll be sweeter jammier definitely not as per their last year's yield right yeah exactly so you know if you if you're if if you make a really dry if you're known for making really dry crisp breads mm. um you know when the grapes are are ripe you need to get a hurry on and the problem is is that that puts massive strain on the on kind of the whole infrastructure mm. of of wine producing um and it's also it's a race against time you know if, if everything if all your grapes in your vineyard rape um ripen unpredictably really suddenly and you're not prepared for it um if you don't if you don't get it done in time then that's your harvest yeah. gone, really. Yeah. One word that sort of keeps coming up in my mind, the reason why the wine's so sensitive to these mm-hmm. climate um, incidences or, or climate changes, you know, either dramatic temperature changes or floods or whatever it mm-hmm. might be, is a thing called terroir. I'm probably not pronouncing it right. Is it terroir? Yeah, terroir. terroir. Um, which you might have heard of before. Um, it, it's, it's a big deal in the, in the wine world, right? So what, for those that aren't familiar with the term... Can you explain what terroir um, is? Terroir is um, sort of an all-encompassing term for um, the conditions that the grapes are grown in. So it can range from um, sort of the temperature, the altitude. It can be the conditions of the soil, um, whether it's you know clay or mm. limestone or or granite. Um, it can be even to do with how you harvest the wine. Um, and the idea is that the different conditions will produce wines of a very particular and distinctive character. Yeah, so is that unique ecosystem to each area where the wine mm-hmm. is grown, right? Yeah. So then so proponents, people who 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 believe terroir is really important will say that, you know, grapes grown with very specific conditions in one vineyard could taste the wine produced would taste markedly different to wine produced, you know, a few miles away, but yeah. with say a different soil, for example. That's why you can't take one grape. So like say if you like Merlot. Mm it's not going to taste the same if you have an old world wine or a new world wine because mm. that ecosystem, that landscape, that weather system, mm. all of those things, the soil, all of that, the, you know, the incline of the hill, mm. whatever it might be, the shadow of the sun, all of that affects the flavour. So you can't just take a great wine or a, a great winemaker or a great, mm. great, try and say all of these words at once, <laughs> a great grape, and transfer that to somewhere else and expect exactly mm. the same results, can you? It's, no. so, it's such a fragile ecosystem. So something like climate change actually has huge impacts on it. Definitely. Um, and there's things like, for example, um, rising sea levels, which leads to flooding, but they also reduce the salinity in like coastal soil. Mm. soil. So, you know, if you have saltier soil mm. and you're growing grapes in the area, that is going to affect 100%. So in terms of, we, we get that it's impacting where it's being grown so how does that impact what wines we're shopping for or the you know the cost of wine and those sorts of things um well i mean sort of in the immediate term if if wine yields are going down um it will make wine more expensive for the consumer certainly the wines we're familiar with buying so when you hear things like there's a prosecco shortage that means the price is going to go up Mm. or you're going to have to look to other wines right definitely um 
on a slightly um, more positive note, it does mean that different um, new uh, wine producer meters mm. are kind of coming to the fore. Yeah. Um, one um, kind of quite well-known um, example close to home is is the UK. Yeah. Um, you know, basically soil conditions are changing, temperatures are rising, and because of that, um, we can actually grow, you know, really great, particularly really great wines, particularly sparkling ones. Mm. Um, the idea is, I think, particularly in places like Kent and Sussex and Surrey, the conditions for growing are quite similar to um, the Champagne region in northern France, which is why actually we can make really good sparkling wines, which have beaten Champagne in taste tests. And yes, stuff. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, I know Exmouth, um, there's a, a brilliant hotel by Michael Keynes there called mm. Limston Manor. They mm. announced this week that they're um, launching, they're going to be growing it, I think, I want to say 25 acre, but maybe ignore the acreage, mm. they're going to launch a huge vineyard there, mm. which just shows that there's one appetite for it, and two, mm. we've got the right conditions for it now. Mm. You know, rightly or wrongly, through climate change, we are able to, to grow grow grapes successfully. But, it, but Kate touches on sort of further afield areas to look at, doesn't she? Yes. So um, something else that's... Um, so, I mean, you never... If, if I said to you, you know, wines from Thailand and wines from India, mm. you'd probably be like, I've never tried yeah. any of those wines. And You and might be scared. In, um, you know, and... That is partly for a good reason. Um, places like Thailand, for example, are or India, um, super hot, often really humid. Mm. Um, and because of that, it can be tricky to make wines that aren't sort of, you know, super ripe or super flabby. Yeah. But enterprising um, wine producers in that region have sort of been spent years kind of trying to work around mm. the challenges that their climate faces. So And understanding um, their terroir again, understanding exactly. that ecosystem. So, for example, um, in places like India, um, you know, you've got kind of clever winemakers doing things like, so wine, Indian wine can be really, really ripe. Yeah. Um, so what they'll do is maybe they'll pick the grapes early. Okay. And kind of age them really gently in oak barrels to kind of sharpen up the end result. Yeah. Or um, places like Thailand. So the, um, uh, this, um, is it Siam or Siam? I'm not too sure. <laughs> but let's go, let's go with one of those. <laughs> so um, the, uh, the winery that makes um, Monsoon Valley wines have been actually uh, running an extensive research programme um, paired with um, universities in Europe to develop wines that are kind of resistant to heat and humidity. Mm-hmm. So that's a really interesting avenue yeah. because hopefully if, can, you know, if, if, if the climate continues to, to do what it's doing right now, hopefully um, you know, these, these, these wine producers will be able to share their knowledge of how to produce wine in challenging conditions and hopefully it means that we'll continue to see interesting, yeah. interesting wines. Um, places like randomly... Um, so there's a province in China called Ningxia, which is really quite high, um, high altitude, really arid. And okay. then that's, again, some great wines coming out Amazing. of that area. Um, Tasmania as well, apparently, is very good for, like, sparkling fizz. Yeah, so it's, it sounds dramatic and it sounds uh, scary, and it is, mm. but it's uh, good to recognise the different wines that are available now and the ones mm. that we should be trying and experimenting with during mm. this time. So um, if you want to learn more about climate change and the effects um, on the wine industry, mm. you can get our March issue, which is out mm. in the shops now, and read Kate's lovely column, or you can wait a couple of weeks and you can probably read it online for free as well. <laughs> OK, all right. Thank you very much, Hannah. That was really interesting. Great, thank you. 
Hi, it's Alex here, and I'm at Carousel in Marleybone, and I'm chatting to Scott Smith um, about ancient Scottish ingredients and cooking techniques, and how him and his team at Norn in Edinburgh, his restaurant, modernised them at his restaurant. So, um, Scott, can you tell us very quickly a little bit about Norn? Yeah, of course. Um, so, Norn, we've been open since 2016. Um, yeah, we take inspiration from from kind of historical recipes and historical techniques, but really it's about not really having a style. It's, you know, trying to be free in the creation of, of what we do in the restaurant. Uh, and then really I wanted to create a space that I would want to eat in. So okay. we've kind of taken kind of classic cooking training and uh, we've got a lot of very well-trained chefs that work there, but we've kind of stripped everything right back and not in terms of the decor or such, but in terms of the way the service is. So... No tablecloths, you know, where we'll play yeah. the Clash and the Sex Pistols while nice. people are eating, you know, and just really kind of uh, calm it down a little bit. And, um, you know, you're still getting high-end food, you're still getting high-end drink, but in a very relaxed environment. Cool. Some people find it a little bit a little bit too intrusive because they, they come in expecting it to be um, the classic fine dining. Um, but it's, it's quite funny in that respect. They come all dressed up and expecting the tablecloths. <laughs> right, and yeah, before you know it, they, they start slouching in the chair by the end of the night and nice. relaxing and, you know, talking at high volume. So, Good. no, it's just about uh, creating a, a nice relaxed space to, to enjoy food and wine without any of the fuss around it. Cool. Well, you're getting some amazing, amazing reviews and um, great feedback. So you're doing something right. Um, so you focus heavily on Scottish produce. Um, yep. What are your favourite ingredients to work with that are a bit unusual for us down in England? <laughs> uh, well, we've got quite a few grains and a few seaweeds, which I'm sure are available down here, but we, we put a lot of emphasis on them. Um, but one that I know you won't get down here is, um, is a grain called burmeal. Okay. So this is uh, it's kind of an ancient grain related to barley. Uh, really, really low yielding as well. So there's only uh, one mill left in the world that still makes this. Oh, wow. And where's that? Uh, uh, that's right up in the northwest of Orkney, small small place called Bursay. Uh, the mill's called the, the Barony Mill. And, uh, yeah, we uh, we make a, a sourdough bread out of that, which is, um, yeah, so it's uh, we've got uh, two sourdough starters that we use, one that's 100% uh, burmeal and one that's uh, rye flour. So we've got Sid and Nancy, which are... Sid and Nancy. Yeah, yeah. Which one's which? <laughs> uh, so Sid is the the Burmeal. Okay. Uh, Nancy's the Rye. Um, and are they friends? Uh, well, sometimes, yeah. They, <laughs> well, they competitive. They're, they're, they're kind of as uh, as unpredictable as their namesakes, really. So that's kind of uh, <laughs> where they got their names. Um, but yeah, we we use that to make a bread, and we've also got uh, a malted version of that grain, which uh, really proud to say this is just made for us. So we're the the only restaurant in the world that's using this uh, this malted grain right now. Wow! Um, and it, what does that what um, characteristics? Does that give the bread? It gives it a slight smokiness, a bit of Ooh, sweetness as well. Okay. So they, they germinate the grain, uh, and then just as it germinates, they then they then toast it off and grind that into the flour. So you, uh, yeah, just get a very mild sweetness, a nice uh, nice smokiness to the bread. So yeah, that's kind of our. Although the restaurant itself evolves the menu all the time, that's the one thing that we've always had since the very beginning right. is is this uh, burmeal sourdough. Well, I'm I'm a massive bread and butter fan. Like I think it really tells a lot about a restaurant, and I'm usually I think if if it's good bread and butter, then I'm in for a treat. I completely agree with you. I think, I mean, it's, it's one of the first things our guests get. And if you let them down at the start, they're going to be in a bad mood for the rest yeah. of the meal. So, yeah, so like I say, the bread is something we put a lot of focus into. And the butter as well. Um, we've never bought a block of butter into the restaurant since we've opened the doors. So Brilliant. 
all the butter is made in-house. We create a culture with the first batch we made and we recycle that into every batch. So it's about 22 months old now, the butter culture. So it's really nice and oh, sour, wow. a little bit like a creme fraiche or yogurt. So um, that's something else we're proud of. So even for the cooking, we, uh, we make our own butters. We've, we've never bought any in. It's, it's, more the, it's more the traceability as well. If you, buy, if you buy a block of butter from a supermarket, the milk or creams probably come from, you know, 30 or 40 different dairies across the country whereas mm. if you're making it yourself you've got full control of uh, which dairy you're using and uh, you know exactly the the origin of all wow and where do you get your dairy from uh, so we get it all from yester farm which is uh just outside of edinburgh so about 30 miles okay. outside cool. um so yeah we probably buy the majority of their cream to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and um anything else any other um the, any other ingredients that you use in your in your dishes? Yeah, well, we use a lot of foraged ingredients. Um, so we go out once a week as a team. And uh, whereabouts do you go? I mean, it varies, and I'm I'm obviously not going to tell you exactly where. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> tell me your secrets, please. <laughs> all, all around the kind of uh, East Lothian, which is just uh, out out the east of Edinburgh, and uh, also just to the south of Edinburgh, there's some brilliant woodlands around there. Uh, so we get some really interesting ingredients around there. So. Just now we're getting things like pepper dulse from the from the beach, which is uh, incredible. It's also known as truffle of the sea. So it's got okay. this unusual black truffle flavour to it, which wow. is uh, really, really nice. Wow, what does that really look nice. like? It looks like uh, tiny little fronds. I'm trying to think what's... Um, I can't think of anything to compare it to, if I'm honest. Um, there's a variety of it called royal fern weed as well. So I guess it kind of looks like a, a fern seaweed almost, but very, very small. Okay. And uh, so that's got a truffley... Um, yeah, yeah. So it's Taste. it's a bit of an unusual unusual flavour. It's um it almost tastes a little bit like synthetic truffle, but in a nice way. Okay. It, it, it's, it's difficult to describe. It's kind okay. of you know trying to trying to describe a you know flavour of milk. If you haven't tasted milk before, you can't really describe yeah, it without absolutely. without tasting it. So. And what about um, Scottish herbs that you use? Yeah. So again, we we do a lot of foraging for that as well. So um, just now we're using quite a lot of succulent herbs from the from the coast. Um, so one we're using right now down in Carousel is called uh, scurvy grass, which is uh, scurvy grass. Okay. Yeah, it's not the nicest sounding. No, uh, it's not. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't <laughs> Do give you. It doesn't give you scurvy. I promise. I'm not. I'm not bringing scurvy down to London with me. Wow. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, very high in vitamin C, and it oh, grows great. all along the coast, which is um, where it gets its name because you know people would get off the boats and eat it as a source of vitamin C, um, which I, I don't envy in quantity because it's uh, really, really very bitter. Um, okay. And a little bit like wasabi, it's got like a horseradish flavour oh, to it as well. Fab. So uh, really nice. It's good to just uh, add a bit of um, bit of contrast in dishes, especially if they have a little bit of sweetness to them. Yeah. Okay. And um, so your menu at Norn, so you're going to be you're doing a residency at Carousel until the 24th of March, um, which is great because Londoners get to try your food without travelling up to Edinburgh, even yeah, though um, I would highly recommend a trip up there. Um, but your menu at the restaurant, which you're bringing down here, is about preserving Scotland's heritage isn't it kind of so you're taking inspiration from ancient cooking techniques and dishes and um can you name a few of these uh, well I think one that people are very familiar with now because it's um you know everybody's doing it which I think is quite right I think a lot of people say it's a trend but to me it's very important that we embrace these techniques I mean one of them is fermenting which is uh oh, it's come yeah. right right back into fashion first mm-hmm. of all it's very good for you and second of all it means you're able to harvest produce when it's abundant and mm-hmm. you know not fly it in all over the world just get it while it's here while it's local and support local producers and uh, instead of having waste being created from the abundancy you're preserving it and using it later on in the year so uh, yeah ferments 
definitely something that's been a kind of inspiration from uh, older techniques. But as I say, it's it's quite um, it's quite regular place now. I think in in the cooking scene, which is you know yeah. It's definitely Absolutely fermenting correct. and pickling is really on I hate to say like on trend because it sounds a bit faddy but yeah. um like you said like it's great if, if it means that we're bringing old techniques no um, absolutely and uh like I say I think a lot of people see it as a trend but I think that would be a, a complete shame if people see it as a trend because mm. it is a, a great uh, system for us to get into in a way for for chefs and people to think is uh you know when something's abundant it should be preserved it shouldn't mm -hmm. be uh used or wasted which is you know a, a big issue just now is food waste anyway yeah. it's easy to point the fingers at supermarkets of course they create a lot of waste but you know if you look at all the restaurants across the country we're doing exactly the same thing so mm -hmm. we've got just as much responsibility yeah and then um, what about when you were growing up in scotland have you learned anything from like your grandma or your your dad or your you know your great um, auntie <laughs> <laughs> about cooking well i mean my my my, my gran and my mum have both been very avid gardeners, so okay. uh, I wouldn't say I've learnt a huge amount cooking-wise, but I've certainly learnt about um, the the advantages to using produce that's fresh and you mm -hmm. know straight out of the garden. And uh, you know, um, my mum's guilty of under-seasoning in her cooking, but you kind of get away with it when using produce that's so fresh because you know yeah, it's, it's got so much flavour and so much nutrients to it. So I guess that's a, a big thing I took from from my parents. Um, my dad kind of he introduced me to one ingredient I'm using down in London right now, which is uh, peas meal. Oh yes, yeah, do tell. So really traditional Scottish uh, ingredient. Uh, it's made by Goldsby Mill, which is up in. Um, well, up in Goldsby, just north of Inverness. Um, very difficult to get down here, as I discovered once I got here. Oh, really? <laughs> I, had to, I had to get the mill to send it direct next day delivery because uh, we almost didn't have it in time. Oh, gosh. Um, but yeah, my dad introduced me to this, and it's um, it's traditionally used for peas pudding, which you may have heard of. Yes, and they have it in, up in Newcastle. Yeah. Our um, food director, Janine, she uh, she always talks about it. She yeah, so peas pudding is quite nice. Uh, and then there's peas porridge, or bros, which is what it's called in Scotland, which is what my dad introduced me to, which, if I'm quite honest, is quite disgusting. It's uh, basically ground up peas meal with water and salt, which Ooh, is... Oh, uh, sounds delicious. Yeah, it's kind of like <laughs> if you thought... If you thought porridge could get any cheaper, this is this is the <laughs> the cheap version of porridge. Um, but, but it's a very interesting ingredient to work with. So it's essentially split yellow peas, which are right. heavily toasted, and okay. then ground into a flour. So um, yeah, you can make it. You can make peas pudding with it, or uh, what we're doing down here is we're cooking out with um, with lamb fat and lamb stock and oh. uh, lots of butter. So it's almost like almost a little bit like a. I suppose a Scottish polenta is how we're serving it, oh, like a soft polenta. Sounds great to me. <laughs> and then, um, so you, that's kind of one of your um, things that you're known for is like modernising um, techniques from, you know, old um, Scotland, mm -hmm. Scottish traditions. Do you have any other um, dishes that you're particularly proud of that you do this with other than the peas meal? Um, if, I'm, if I'm honest, I mean, it's a big part of our restaurant is taking inspiration from old cooking techniques, but... I suppose a bigger part of what we do is is being hyper seasonal mm -hmm. and using local producers and also taking much more humble ingredients and showing them off. So I mean, just now we're we're we've got a dish which is a, a cabbage dish and uh, is is the reaction I enjoy the most because people we bring the dish out and obviously it's it's essentially a cabbage I love on the cabbage, plate. Though. Well, not many people say that, believe it or not. Yeah, <laughs> I love it as well. But um, it's again a very humble ingredient. Uh, so we've 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 just taken that and just tried to um, 
tried to elevate that to make it a bit more a bit more elegant. Um, so essentially what we're doing with that is heavily braising the cabbage, or charring it, heavily braising it. And then we're taking it apart and then rebuilding it with uh, layers of fermented wild garlic from oh, wow. from garlic we, we harvested last year. So you're getting okay. last year's produce mixed with this year's produce. Uh, so rebuilding that, so rebuilding the cabbage with layers of that and a really nice um, Scottish blue cheese called Lanark Blue, which is made by the Errington family who are you know champions of... Uh, of unpasteurized cheeses in Scotland they've kind of been at the forefront of uh, of allowing us to continue to produce and uh, enjoy these cheeses so Great. um yeah it's just it's just taking humble ingredients and trying to show them off in a different light yeah definitely I had um I went to Stedson's in the woods I don't know if you've heard about that in Sweden in the for- in the middle of the forest yeah and they them, yeah. do a lot of uh, foraging and we had like about six courses and my favorite was they literally had like five different types of cabbage and they just cooked it with, sorted it with brown butter and hazelnuts. And it oh, was wow. the most delicious thing. Yeah. So I can imagine that yours with all of that cheese and the wild garlic is just unbelievable. I just think, uh, yeah, cabbage gets a bad name, I think, cause mainly because how it's been prepared traditionally, you know, overcooked till it's grey and yeah. disgusting. Just a filler. S- smells of farts. Yeah. It's not nice. <laughs> no, I don't want to uh, say <laughs> Well, I've said it. Um, yeah. <laughs> And I think, uh, you know, if, if you just give even the simplest ingredients, you know, a bit of care and attention, you can actually make them shine and uh, show off what fantastic produce we actually do have. We don't have to buy stuff from around the world. We've got it exactly. right here on our doorstep. Yeah. So. And is that your favourite dish, do you think, to cook? I, I would say right now, well, on the menu right now, it's my favourite dish, mainly because of the reaction, because, you know, guests see it as a cabbage and yeah. even you get people who say they hate cabbage and then by the end of the meal, they've had, you know, scallops and hoggett and all these other you know luxury items i suppose you'd call them um and they always come back and say the favorite course with the cabbage amazing so and is it, it presented as a whole cabbage yeah it's so it's um it looks it looks almost like a it looks like a small um a small savoy cabbage when we put it back together so we always take a bit of the cabbage which is a little bit burnt a little bit undercooked a little bit overcooked okay. a little bit perfectly cooked so we get all the different textures of the cabbage and then rebuild it back together amazing and one last question I don't want to be stereotypical, but um, I asked our cookery writer, who is half Scottish, what his favourite Scottish ingredient was, uh, thing to eat or drink, and he said iron brew. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do people drink it up there, or is it just a, is it a bit? Of a no, joke? it's it's not it's not a stereotype at all. It, it's, <laughs> people do um, drink a lot of iron brew. Um, I've gone, I wouldn't say I've gone off a little bit. I've, I've toned down on it because it's obviously not great for your teeth and uh, no. <laughs> not, not good for the waistline either. Um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, I, I love iron brew. It's, uh, it's great for, it's, it's great for the morning after a heavy night, but that yeah. way it's because it's got a lot of sugar in it. Um, I suppose a, a chipper wouldn't be the same without a can of iron brew either. So um, <laughs> no, it, it's kind of a bit of a, a, a national treasure up in Scotland. Yeah. Along um, with fried Mars bars. Along with fried Mars bars, they're, they're a bit less common. Um, I think that's more of a, a kind of stereotype, I'd say, the fried Mars bar. I don't, not many people eat them. Oh, actually saying that, I went through a stage at school of spending all my lunch money on fried Mars bars, but that was nice. a long time ago. That's before I decided what I knew what good food was. Uh, but yeah, no, I, Iron Brew is um, absolutely a, a staple of, of the Scottish uh, culinary scene, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. I just got an image of you like cooking, like coming down here with like a crate of Iron Brew and like cooking all of your amazing Scottish You're not dishes. too far away from what happens in the kitchen back in Edinburgh. Really? Um, 
again, not so much for myself, but the team, uh, they've always got a can or two in their fridges for during services to keep the sugar levels up. <laughs> and, and that's not me just making it up. That is genuinely what happens. I so. love that. I love how it's, yeah, I was like, I have to ask, but um, it's yeah. true. So, well, thanks very much for chatting to us. Um, and yeah, if anybody wants to come and try the famous uh, cabbage um, of Scott's and all of his amazing other foods, so you've got things like hoggett and peasemeal and all of the amazing pro- Scottish produce, um, he is at Carousel on Blandford Street until the 24th of March. So um, still got a, a few tickets left. Yeah, yeah, it's starting. This, Very few. This, this week is uh, is filling up and next week is uh, really filling up. Only a few yeah. left next week. So uh, yeah, okay. ho- hopefully if you hear this, you can get in and say hello. Yes. All right. Thanks so much. Nice Thank, to meet yeah. you. Thank you, Alex. Thanks. So I'm here with Adam Kukuraita. Hi, Adam. Hello. Hello. And um, we're going to talk about a feature in this month's issue, which is all about uh, cool trends or trends that we've um, recognised coming up. And um, we just thought it was good to kind of illustrate them by doing a few recipes so we can talk about those too. Um, what should we talk about first? Should we talk about um, Root to Leaf? Because I think that's one that's really Yeah, on that's really cool. Yeah. Right. So basically what, what Root to Leaf is, is um, using every part of the plant and it's part of a, a kind of zero waste um, campaign that's running by quite a few chefs because yeah. um, they obviously when you're working in a kitchen and you've got that massive volume of, of um, cooking and you're working with vegetables you're going to see a lot of that veg just go straight in the bin yeah 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 like uh like carrot tops like yeah. the tops of like the celeriac leaves things yeah. like that that most people like in most cases would just literally be lumped off bin straight off the yeah. bat and then you work with the product that you so i think we started um we were talking to tom hunt last year um he came in to talk to us about about zero waste he's he's sort of implemented it and then there's also um douglas mcmaster of silo and brighton yeah who's um they've both adopted zero waste policies um the thing is with veg a, l- a lot of veg are, are brilliant for, for using stuff so for example um like you said turnip tops can be like steamed or they can mm-hmm. be stir fried mm-hmm. you can make um pesto from carrot tops mm-hmm. um the bro- broccoli often people use the florets and then just chuck the, the stalk stem. away yeah, yeah the stalk you can just peel it and then just like Dice chomp it. on it. It's, yeah, really, yeah, ni- yeah, it's yeah. really nice in salads because it's got this really deliciously crisp kind mm, of taste t- to it. Yeah, yeah. Or you can just whiz it up and use it in a soup. And then just like standard things like potatoes, you know, like peeling a potato. Yeah, deep frying the skins or yeah. anything like that. Or... Because there's lots of fibre and vitamins yeah. in the skin because that's where it sort of lives. Is it? Is it? Well, it's like they used to argue that, you know, that's the best bit. You're throwing yeah. away the best bit. I don't know. Maybe that's, <laughs> that's just what my your dad. granny would say, that's isn't it? it? Yeah, yeah. The best bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I approve of kind of deep fried potato skins. I'm not sure about. Um, I've got a thing about people who make mash with Ma- skins. No, no. Because no, for no. me, it's deeply like unacceptable. Peel them and then deep fry that separately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, don't give me my mash with bits of. No. I think like new potatoes are slightly different. You've, if it's crushed, oh, no, yeah, yeah, a nice and a new nice thin got a nice skin, skin. Yeah. yeah, or a Jersey Royal. Obviously, yeah, you're not yeah. going to peel a Jersey Royal. Yeah, but um, don't give me mash with skins in. Wash them. Otherwise, wash, I'll please do out. wash them first um, as well. We have to say that there are a few things that you shouldn't eat the tops of: rhubarb leaves, yeah, poisonous. highly poisonous. Yeah. Don't try and eat them. Um, aubergine stems. Um, oh, the, the, actual the green, top, bit, the green yeah, bit, yeah, that's that's not great for you. That would give you probably quite a bad stomach upset. And also, if your if your potato started sprouting, yeah. don't eat the little sprouts because they're not great for you either. But can you still 
eat the potato? Can you cut yeah, around you can, it? You, I mean, that would be a case where it would probably be safest just to just to... peel it and use the potato inside. That's right. fine. It's just the little sprouting bits right, that you right, don't right, want to okay. yeah. eat that. But anyway, so that's a great one. Um, I did a recipe, which is, um, a, and it's happened to be vegan as well. Um, it's a cauliflower carbonara. So what I did was um, cook the collie in lots of um, olive oil and vegetable stock and garlic and then just whizzed it and it, it turns into this like amazingly creamy sauce that mm. you can toss through pasta. And then I was amazed, like the leaves of the cauliflower, um, toss them a little olive oil, salt and pepper and put them in the oven and they go incredibly crispy. Yeah. So you could just they eat do. that as a snack. Yeah, you know, yeah, like definitely. Kale crisp was trendy. Because it's like it has the stem and the really frilly leafy frilly bit. Le- so you get yeah. like juicy, crunchy, stem. nice stem with yeah. that crispy. Yeah. So it's like, you know, you get two things in one almost yeah. you could know? be like the next kale crisps could be let's make it happen let's make it let's do it <laughs> what else have you got what did you do um so i did african or oh, yeah, more specifically african. ethiopian um because yeah. it's definitely something that you see well i i'm i've noticed more and more in london yeah. and particularly like street food things so if you go to around like borough market uh, hernhill market and broy market the ones that i pretty much go yeah. to um Seeing a lot more like Ghanaian, uh, yeah. Nigerian, and and as my recipe is Ethiopian. Zoe, Zoe from Zoe's Ghana Kitchen yeah. was on. Uh, we had some recipes in the thing, and she was talking in the podcast about, um, and and her whole vibe is that she's she's part Ghanaian, and she wanted to take some of the flavors of Ghana and introduce them into her food. But she was saying, you know, it's not no, it's not super authentic, but it's it's like my memories and it's my kind of feeling about Ghanaian food. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think, like you said, a lot. Of, that's what a lot of people are doing. Yeah, yeah. It's not strictly the food that you would get. No, in no, Ethiopia. you're not going to go and be like, oh, you wouldn't get this in, like, yeah. you know, in you know, Ethiopia or whatever. But, but it's a really good introduction. It's a definitely. really good entry level for people to um, to do that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I took like the the Berber uh, spice mix, which yeah. is also more prominent because I think is it Bart's? They do like a. Uh, they did like a jarred spice mix yeah. of it now. But you, so did, like, you did your own mix. But yeah, of course. You? Yeah, I do it and properly. And it's quite like a heady mix, isn't it? I yeah. Mean, there's kind of, there's all sorts, of, there's, look, there's tons of peppercorns, yeah. coriander, smoked paprika, yeah. garlic, chili. So it's, it's really Fenugreek, got like. Yeah. A, it's got a, it's a bit of everything. It hits you across the face. Yeah, that's what you spice. want. But I kind of, with the, the like sort of crispy, fatty chicken wings, yeah. you know, that's what you want. You want yeah. a bit of a uh, bit of punch. Yeah. So yeah. you've seen a lot of that, you reckon, in the markets as well. People yeah. just popping up. Yeah, loads of people like, yeah, just cooking. Like there's a taste of Ethiopia, yeah. which is around Brixton and South London. And Ethiopian flavours, that's the one, at Borough Market. Yeah, yeah. that are just, yeah, it's just a lot more prominent. And I think we were inspired because Laura, um, our editor, she'd had the chicken wings at Lem Lem Kitchen mm. in Hackney's um, Nestle Market. So yeah. I think that's kind of where the idea sprung from of like, you know, taking the whole chicken th- wings thing and then adding this incredible spice mix. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a great one. That, that is a really nice recipe in there as well. Mm-hmm. Very simple. Like the spice mix is quite long, but you've probably got most of them in your cupboard yeah, already, yeah. I'd you say. Yeah, you definitely have it. Um, what else should we talk about? Dirty vegan? Because, I mean, it's on the Why cover. Not? Why it's on not? the cover, yeah. Um, so we, we talked about vegan earlier on in the year, and it's just one of those things where it's actually moved from from being a, a, a niche trend to being a real mainstream trend. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. if McDonald's are doing a vegan burger or whatever it is, you, you, know, you, know, you know that you know, it's moved it's, into yeah, the mainstream. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, supermarkets are selling jackfruits. We've basically got, like... Um, cauliflower steaks yeah, which are like yeah, a massive yeah. vegan trend 
happening yeah. in supermarkets too. Yeah. Um, but dirty vegan exactly. it's is, like, is a kind of a slight, I guess, a slight reaction to the idea of vegan as this kind of tree huggy, yeah, right on, like, like yeah, you know, yeah. denying yourself stuff. Dirty vegan is all about getting your getting your kicks yeah but, um, I mean, just because it's yeah. i think it's like it's a bit it's like sort of de- denying the myth that um just because it's vegan means that it's like in- intrinsically like healthy and really yeah. worthy as yeah. well you know no like... no it could be dirty too it could be like <laughs> full of calories and really warming and comforting and you know well, we um have to say we we just uh shot a video for the the, the cover recipe which is a which is Adam's incredible vegan donor. Yeah. And I, I know people say you won't believe, you will not believe that this yeah, is yeah. vegan because we discovered this incredible thing called seitan. Yeah, the seitan. Um, which is a wheat, it's kind of a wheat protein. Which you then sort of make into a dough, I think is the easiest way. Yeah. Um, and what, but we, we bought it, we actually bought it online and we bought it in a big block, which we found that you could slice into kind of dirty donor slices. Yeah, so it looks it literally, exactly, I mean, it looks picture exactly wise, the it's the same. same. <laughs> we're not like, we're not making that up on the cover that yeah, is actually yeah. like completely vegan um and also the other great thing about seitan is it just sucks up flavor so mm. we fried it with kind of typical donna kebab spices um you made a, a really beautiful like puffy pita bread to yeah. put it in homemade pet bread and, and then, then vegan garlic sauce vegan garlic mayo which again is just yeah you, you know i i ate it when it came out of the test kitchen today and that is a that's a fab but i mean that there's there's a few places isn't there there's the um temple of satan yeah which is so that's that was my first name. introduction to the satan yeah. thing um they they're famous for their sort of like in brackets chicken burgers so they do these like really filthy um seitan uh like breaded deep fried as if it's like a fillet burger type thing with like really zingy slaw nice bun and like you know if you had like i mean for me it's not it's not the real thing like it's but that doesn't mean that in in itself it isn't delicious and have a really nice texture and all those things but it's you know I think the Satan thing's been a bit of a revelation because previously you would be slightly restricted to, do, to using something like tofu, which yeah, has got yeah. a very... You've got to work quite hard to get texture into tofu. Yeah, yeah. Whereas with Satan, it's... Um, it already it has that. It has it has a bit of bite to it mm. and a bit of, like, spring and a bit of give already. So yeah, you're kind yeah. of, you, you know, getting the sort of... The texture within all of the veg and the bun and stuff. Mm. Um, and there's also a place uh, called What the Pita, if you want to look that up, that does a... A great Donna kebab. Yeah, apparently. I think they think they think they've now got. Well, they will soon have three sites in London. Oh, so cool. yeah. And if you want to look um, online for Satan, it's not spelt like the devil. It's yeah. spelt S E I T A N S E I T N. So <laughs> go look it up. Don't look for Satan. You'll nah. get a whole other Google search thing. No, there. absolutely. Um, and lastly, should we talk about brunch? Because brunch is just the gift that keeps on giving. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. It's yeah. Like, I think it's just an excuse for people to go out and get hammered at like 12 o'clock on a Sunday. Personally, I don't need an excuse. (laughs) Um, That's just called normal. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it's just, it just seems to be this millennial type thing where everyone's like, oh yeah, what are you doing? I'm going for brunch, you know? (laughs) But um, so we kind of thought, let's do something that maybe people might not have seen as much of. Yeah, because we've seen it, I think... And it's a good thing because it means, you, you know, you can go out and have brunch and it doesn't just have to be the classic smoked salmon, 
you know, scrambled or eggs. The avo. You know, yeah, the, the avo on toast. smashed avo. I think you've got avo. Have you got avo on this recipe? Or not? No, I don't no, think I, so. Oh, yeah. The, Do I? There is an avocado. Oh, wow. It. That, I actually, I did, I did write that recipe, I promise. It's very different to avocado on toast. Mm. But So the idea is that we, we'd seen all of these, um, you know, kind of ethnic and like global restaurants popping up and they were all starting to do brunch menus as well. Yeah. yeah so you yeah. were like quite taken by um, yeah. a rep. Is it a rep? A rep's. Yeah, rappers. yeah. So they're Venezuelan, so, right? Yeah. So um, I've, I've eaten a rep's. Actually, I've eaten not like, oh yeah, I was eating Venezuelan food long before everyone <laughs> you else. Were, but, you were like that. You were But yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a spot called a rep and co down on Regent's Canal yeah. that I used to, I've been going to for, yeah, don't know, like years and it has been a few years, yeah. but like maybe that sounds that sounds like decades. All right, but no. we believe you. Come on, someone will probably write in and be like, "Oh, are. it opened in 2017." Um, but uh, yeah, so it's Venezuelan. They're like uh, maize kind of uh, griddled taco that you split in half, yeah. and it's kind of hard to just. It's like a muffin type thing. It's kind of a cross between. Um, it's like a stiffer muffin, like yeah. like a doughier muffin. Yeah, yeah. But still like a, a, around about the size of a muffin. But using like that sort of uh, corn, <clears throat> like maize yeah. flour, so it has that sort of corn tortilla. And then when you like fry them, it gets yeah. that really toasty, delicious on the outside, uh, on the outside yeah. uh, flavor. And what are you filling it with? Uh, and then I did like a little Creole sauce with uh, prawns, like tomatoes nice. and green peppers, you know, like the traditional um, bit of spice. And then obviously sticking it it's brunch so it has to have an egg on it has to stick an egg on top yeah, yeah. and then some avocado just because like well you we have to keep the millennials happy don't yeah. you know, they'll be you're good. a millennial aren't you mm, uh, yeah. I was born in, I was born in <laughs> 89 does that count I think it does um, but anyway yeah so great ideas there um Go and, go and check them out on our March issue, still available now, or I think some of these might have actually gone up online at olivemagazine.com. Yeah. But um, thanks for talking us through them, Adam. Yeah, Bye. That was the Olive Magazine podcast. If you like this episode or you have any suggestions, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. For more information on things in this episode, you can visit our website, olivemagazine.com. You can still pick up a copy of our March issue from News Agents Now or go and download the app version. Bye for now and we'll be back next week with more food and drink chat. <laughs>